Welcome to part three of the three-part episode of John W. Thompson on the Series B Show. I'm your host, Brandon Jones, and in part two, John discussed his rapid rise through the ranks of IBM, some of the tactics and tips he used to become as successful as he did at IBM, and, and some of the things that he had to sacrifice along the way to get there. In part three, John will discuss leaving yeah, IBM after 28 years deciding to make a move over to Symantec where he became CEO and chairman, ultimately cementing a very, very successful run as CEO and establishing himself as one of the highest paid CEOs in the world on the Forbes list. For example, just in one year, he made over $70 million along that reign. Um, he discussed his strategy running Symantec and also some of the, the things he does outside of the CEO roles, such as chairing a number of boards. Currently, he's serving as chairman of Microsoft's board of directors, leading the search for its current CEO, Satya Nadella. And he'll also talk a little bit about his current passions, things he loves to do, and what he's looking to focus on in the future. So enjoy. To fast forward a little bit, you were at IBM for 28 years. Almost. 27 years, nine months, and 13 days. There we go. <laughs> and you remember every day. Yeah, every day of it. You invested a lot in IBM, and IBM invested a lot in you. Yeah. And at that point, you were in your 50. You decided to leave. Mm -hmm. What led to that decision, specifically keeping in mind you know, how long you together kind of had this partnership? Yeah. Well, along the way, um, I joined the board of my first public company, which was a utility company in Northwest Indiana, and I would sit around the boardroom table with all these guys who were CEOs or presidents, and my view was, shit, you don't know any more than I know, <laughs> and you guys got these fancy titles and make all this money. I, I'd love to be a CEO someday. The competitiveness came out. Bingo. And rumor was that there were, you know, three guys that were in the race to replace Gerstner, Sam Palmazano, a guy named Dave Thomas, and me. And I knew that I was third in the race, not first in the race. Why? And because Lou and I weren't friends. You know, I, I never kissed his ring or his ass. You know, my view was, you judge me on my performance, and I don't need to be your friend. And that was a mistake. Right. I will admit that was a mistake. Right. Um, but when I knew that I had lower odds to getting that job, um, I thought, you know, if I want to be a CEO, I, I'm going to have to leave here. And a guy named John T. Thompson at Hydric and Struggles here in the Valley had put me in front of many, many opportunities along the way, and I'd always said no to every one of them. And I jokingly said to him one day, well, you know, us IBMers, we're shoppers, we're not buyers. <laughs> uh, we just want to understand what the market looks like and what our options are and all of that, but we're not going to buy anything new. And he asked the simple question, what would it take for you to say yes? I went, gee, I, I don't really know. And he says, well, don't answer it now. Uh, give it some thought. I'll call you back, and I want you to give me your view of what it would take for you to say yes. So sure enough, about 
Two weeks later, he called back and says, okay, what's the answer? I said, okay, okay, three things. One, it would have to be a software company. I said, my view is that software is as much about sales and marketing as it is about the technology because if you are early into a market, you have an opportunity through the sales and marketing engine to build momentum which allows you to fund incremental development, which allows you to build a bigger portfolio of products. Makes sense. And so that's where I would like to start. And he says, okay, what else? I said, well, no one would ever confuse me with being an entrepreneur because I've spent my entire career at IBM. So it would have to be a, a mid-sized business that's kind of lost its way, that's in trouble. It needs someone to come in and help them reimagine who they are and what they're trying to accomplish. Because in the last 10 years or so of my IBM career, that's pretty much what I did. Every time something was in trouble, they would say, well, give it to John, he'll fix it. Starting with the Midwest. Right. And he says, okay, what else? I said, well, it'll have to be the top job. I'm not gonna leave what is one of the top 10, 20 jobs in the company here to go be the number two or three or four guy in some small company in Silicon Valley. So he says, okay, fine, I got it. Well, literally, Six months went by, eight months went by, and one day I get an email note from him that says, okay, perfect fit, $600 million software company, uh, kind of lost its way, looking for a president and CEO. And I thought, hmm, that fits the profile. I either better step up or shut up. And so I agreed to meet with the lead independent director who was a guy named Steve Miller. <clears throat> Steve and I had a wonderful conversation I then flew out and met with the current CEO and the members of the management team and a couple of other board members. Then I did some more diligence work and I went back to Steve and I said, okay, I'll take the job on two conditions. And he says, okay, what are they? First, we have to get the economics right. I'm not gonna walk away from a gold watch and you know, all of the crap that comes along with that. And two, I want you to become the chairman of the board. He went, what? I said, well, in my view, no CEO fails by himself or herself. The board has to take some responsibility for mm -hmm. what's happened here. Mm -hmm. And so while I'm trying to fix the company, I need you to fix the board. Because I'd met with a bunch of the board members, and my view is that it wasn't the world's best board. And so he says, well, that's a problem. I said, well, why is that? He says, well, the existing CEO is going to become the chairman of the board. I said, well, that really is a problem because... Uh, while I think he's a wonderful guy, I'm not going to accept the role to try to transform the company when the founder is the chairman of the right. board. And he says, okay, let me go figure out what we can do. And he came back to me 24, 48 hours later and says, okay, new deal. So, okay, what's the deal? He says, you're going to be chairman, president, and CEO. <laughs> and I uh, said, okay, and let's talk about the economics. And we talked about the economics. And we got into a little squabble over how many restricted shares yeah. and all this crap. And my wife said to me, I never thought this was about money. <laughs> I went, really? She says, I always thought this was about you exercising your brain and practicing all the things that you've learned over all the years that you've been at IBM. And what was your retort? I said, you're right. <laughs> And I picked up the phone, called my attorney, and said, I'll sign it. That was like on a Sunday night at 10, 11 o'clock. The next morning, that Monday morning, I informed my boss that I was leaving. 
I was the highest ranking African American in IBM at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was running one of their biggest businesses. So I called my dad and I said, Dad, uh, it's likely to show up in the Palm Beach Post that I'm leaving IBM. And there's this big pregnant pause. And he says, what do you mean leaving IBM? I said, well, I'm going to become the CEO of a company out in Silicon Valley. Where's Silicon Valley? I said, well, it's out in California. He says, but why are you leaving IBM? I said, it's my chance to you know, prove that I really can lead a company. And so there's another big pregnant pause. And he says, well, what about your pension? Because <laughs> my dad was a government employee. Right. And I said, well, if this works out like I hope it will, my IBM pension will pale in comparison to the opportunity that re- this represents. And he's like, really? How is that? And so I said, well, I'll get a bunch of stock options. and Stock options? Because you know, he didn't believe in the equity markets. Every other nickel he earned went into a savings account. That's the highest risk he ever took in his whole life. Wow. Now, he passed away at 90, almost 93 years old, and he'd accumulated two-plus million dollars in wealth uh, through savings accounts and buying real estate and things like that. But uh, Conservatively, but he did very well. Yeah, but he just didn't understand the notion that I was leaving this big, prominent company to go to some little thing out here in Silicon Valley. And I think even... To the very end, uh, he still didn't quite get it. He, he just thought working for IBM's got to be far more significant than working for Symantec. <laughs> but, you know. So you left IBM two and a half years away from your gold watch. Correct. Which was a somewhat radical move for your family and probably you know a few other folks. But you knew in your mind what you wanted to do in your career next? See, I don't, I've never thought about retirement. Uh, I don't think life is about retirement. Life is, should be about lifelong learning and trying to apply the learnings and experiences that you have gathered throughout your life to something new and different. Mm-hmm. And, and so even if I had stayed at IBM through 30 years or 33 years or 35 years, I was never going to be retired after that. I was going to do something different. And if if it was true, my perception was that if I was going to be a CEO of a Valley company, I had to get it before I was 50. And I was 49 <laughs> in, a, in 11 months. Right. And so I had to get on with it if I was going to have a shot. So to fast forward to the ending of the semantic story, Thompson successfully transformed Symantec from a $632 million consumer software company into a multinational market leader in enterprise security software with 5,600 employees and projected revenues of $2.41 billion in fiscal 2005. You were successful. So let's take a quick look at what your mindset was entering into this, into this realm. You know, you kind of put all your chips in one place. Your legacy, in a lot of ways, was kind of riding on what happened here. What was your kind of your first order of business, so to speak. And in a lot of ways, you had actually kind of done that, which was entering as CEO, president, and chairman of the board. So you had, you know, as close to full autonomy as, as one can have in this scenario. So what was your first order of business? Well, Symantec at the time was a consumer packaged software company. That if you could 
put a CD or a diskette in a box and put it on a shelf in a retail store and move it, that's the business they wanted to be in. And they happened to have very, very successful brands. Norton Antivirus. Mm -hmm. uh, they had ACT, which was the top uh, personal contact management system in the marketplace at the time. But they had missed the CRM market that Siebel and a few others had taken over. We had the number one Java tools development platform in the industry at the time. Mm -hmm. But guess what? We didn't even use it to build any of our own products. We had one of the number one remote control PC communications products in PC Anywhere. And it was such a hodgepodge of products. And I, I'm kind of looking at this saying, I don't get it. And what I quickly came to realize was the product, the, the strategy of the company was not about the technology. It was about the distribution model. And I had never seen a successful software company that put more focus on distribution than they, they did on the technology itself. And so once I kind of came to that realization about, you know, 60, 80 days, 90 days into the job, I went, okay, how do we refocus this company around a technology platform that we can then go and leverage more broadly? So we sold the Java tools business. We sold the personal contact management business. We put ACT in the hands of, of another buyer. We kept PC Anywhere because it threw off a lot of cash and we were gonna use that cash to fund, if you will, the incremental investments we needed to make along the way. The first real security software company we bought was a little company called UR Labs that did URL filtering. And so the notion was let's take the Norton brand and add to that a set of security capabilities. And because we had the reputation of being a consumer software company, that was not my background. My background was all about the enterprise. And so about a year or a year and a half into my term at Symantec, we then went and bought an East Coast company called Accent Securities. It had a very, very strong enterprise footprint in the security space. And the combination of Norton and Accent became the foundation on which we then you know, grew Symantec into a uh, you know, $2.5-$3 billion security company. You drove the company's stock more than 500% in the period of you running the company beating all the competitors in the space and also besting the NASDAQ, which actually went down over that same period. One of the kind of highlights that's really inspirational to me is you became along the way one of the highest paid corporate executives in America. And so that's inspiring to me for a few reasons. One, you created the value, and I think that's important. But I think a biggest part is the statement that's making to kind of put a, a punctuation point on your story, which was, I wanna step out you know, a really, really good position, top 10, top 20 roles at IBM, go to a smaller company, define a strategy, you know, ultimately reap the, the value of what you created. Well, I had to prove to my dad that I was right. <laughs> <laughs> you had arrived multiple times in your career, but obviously, you know, you'd really, really, really arrived at that point. What was your mindset, you know, knowing that you had set out to achieve this goal of cementing your legacy, running a company, doing it, but not just doing it, overachieving even in that aspect? How did that feel? Kind of, kind of walk through when you when you said to yourself, "Wow, like I, I've really, really kind of reached this 
plateau. Well, no one, no one has the kind of success we had at Symantec from the beginning till I left in 2009 without having a great team around them. Um, I had a guy named Greg Myers who was my CFO, who was just a phenomenal, phenomenal guy. And while I was trying to figure out the strategy and how to create true top-line performance, Greg was working with me to figure out how do we fund the investments that we need and how do we generate the kind of free cash flow that we needed uh, to make investments in internal development or external acquisitions. I ended up hiring a colleague of mine from IBM, a guy named John Schwartz, uh, who was my chief operating officer, and John was an engineer. I was a sales and marketing guy, John was an engineer, and so John helped me greatly as we were thinking about how we would integrate so many of the component parts that we bought, because we made many, 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 many acquisitions over the years. And so success for any leader is not simply about what the leader does or did, it's as much about the team that the, lead, the leader creates and what the team together is able to accomplish. And I felt really, really good about the team that we created at Symantec and what evolved from that creation, if you will. Two things. The first is you did a lot of acquisitions. You sometimes read about acquisitions and not really creating value, and you found a way to, to really successful. Well, one of the biggest ones we did did not pan out, mm -hmm. and that was the purchase of Veritas, which... Uh, I was looking to diversify our business. My view was Veritas had the number one backup and recovery business, and we had the number one security business. So if your data got breached, it'd be great if you had the backup engine to recover the data. And so that was the logic behind the deal. But the cultural fit between the two companies was a disaster, was an unmitigated disaster. And it just never, ever worked, quite frankly. Was that your biggest challenge as a CEO? That's you had probably, a pretty good ride. So. Yeah, that's probably the toughest period for my time at Symantec. You decided to leave Symantec in 2009. Yeah. What made you decide to leave? Well, I have a personal philosophy about leaders. I think eight to 10 years, you should be done. The idea that you're going to lead a company for 15, 20 years, in my mind, makes no sense. Compa organizations need fresh eyes and ears. Uh, and I'd served my 10 years, my view was, I'm done. I'm ready to move on and let someone else with a fresh perspective come in and take a look at the company. I have that same philosophy about boards. I've served on many, many boards over the course of the years, and my average tenure on a board is, guess what, 10 years, where I think boards need fresh eyes and ears, and so I don't want to sit around a boardroom table like one of the boards I joined, where the guy seated at the table had been there for 33 years. And he was lobbying to extend the mandatory retirement age from 70 to 72 so he could be there till he 35 years. And I'm like, this is dumb. This makes no sense. And so, uh, again, in the spirit of the philosophy I have around lifelong learning, you also have to make room for others to learn and practice as well. And we had a couple of really young guys at Symantec that I thought were capable of running the company and taking it to the next level. 
one of which was Enrique Salem. And unfortunately, that didn't work out quite like we had hoped. But he, was a, he is a brilliant, brilliant young man who's one of the top VCs now for Bain Capital. But you didn't stop. No, no, no. You I'm didn't stop. Saying, so no. you were looking for a new challenge yeah. more than anything. You weren't, you weren't saying, hey, let me downshift a, a couple gears. You moved on into a, a new role. But I want to double click on kind of your board work for a second. Yeah. Chairman of the board of Microsoft. That's a big deal. <laughs> I think you had served for on the board for two years before being asked to be chairman of the board. So one, you exhibited superior leadership to kind of be asked to take that role. But what have you learned from that experience as kind of being chairman of the board of one of the most influential tech companies that we've ever had in the world? Well, I, I think Microsoft was an attractive opportunity for me because it looked to me in the 2009, 2010 timeframe when I was approached by Steve to be a lot like the IBM I knew in the 1990s, mm-hmm. where it still had a very powerful platform. It still had a very strong revenue and cash flow engine, but it had lost its way on the innovation front. And I felt that I had learned something from the six years that I worked at IBM under Lou Gerstner, and I had learned something from the 10 years I had spent at Symantec as we transformed it. And I thought, well, gee, maybe, just maybe, uh, if I join the Microsoft board, I can help Steve and the team there get Microsoft redirected, if you will, in a way that uh, would be helpful and meaningful to the company. And so, I mean, I give the guys a lot of credit. They called me literally days after I announced that I was stepping down. And I said, well, you may not think of us as a competitor. We think of you as a competitor. And so I can't join the Microsoft board right now because I'm still going to be chairman at at Symantec. And so when I finally stepped down as chairman at Symantec, they were all over me like (laughs) chicken on a June bug. And Sure enough, I eventually said yes. I was looking at a couple of other Valley tech companies, but none of them seemed to have the same set of challenges that fit the experience base that I had. And I wanted to apply my experience to the challenges at Microsoft to the extent that the team was willing to listen. And you also led the search for Microsoft's current CEO, Satya Nadella, who thus far has done really, really, really well in that position as far as the innovation piece specifically, which is another piece that you kind of honed in on. So kudos, kudos to you for leading that search. I want to switch gears and then I want to adjourn a little bit. Okay. You've accomplished so much thus far. One has to ask the question, like, what is in the future of John Thompson? What are you passionate about now, both professionally and personally? I mean, what's going to get the bulk of your attention over the the next five to 10 years? Well, I am um, entertaining one more public company board. I have for the last few years had a philosophical view that I only want to do one public company board. And because things are progressing quite well, I think at Microsoft, I think I can add one more to my mix. And it'll be a company that Uh, I can learn something in the process because I have always believed that life is about lifelong learning. And so I want to go somewhere where what they're focused on and what they're trying to do is fascinating and interesting and I can learn something and make a contribution as a member of that board. 
Um, that'll probably get announced in the next few months. I won't tell you the sure, name of the sure. company, but it's it's one that I am quite fascinated by because of the work that they're doing. Since 2006, 2007, I've been an early stage investor in lots and lots of companies, many of the which I've flushed, <laughs> a few of which have done just fine. Uh, I will continue to do that for sure. And I will probably join one more private company board, um, one that has very, very good IPO prospects. Not that I'm looking for an IPO home run, it's more that I want to help a CEO who's never run a public company manage his way through that process. And, and that's, I'm actually meeting with the CEO and the management team today's Tuesday on Thursday of this week. And once we've kind of worked our way through that, then I'll decide when's the right time to do that. Um, so I've got lots of things that are going to keep me busy for the next, you know, eight to ten years, let's just say. I am passionate about uh, grape juice. <laughs> and so my wife and I tour the world looking to enjoy great wines. Uh, we have a wonderful wine cellar at our home here in Woodside and our home up in Napa. And so I love to enjoy great juice. And I travel the world bird hunting. It's a passion of mine, something that I learned when I moved to California that Californians in general don't like. Uh, I remember telling the reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle that I uh, was a bird hunter and within a week, I had literally hundreds of copies of Norton Antivirus <laughs> returned to me because I was such a wicked, wow. evil guy wow. for shooting birds. But we have two rules in our house. Rule number one is we eat what we shoot, so we don't go out to kill things just right. to kill things. And rule number two is the freezer must be empty before the next season starts. And so we share the fruits of the effort with all of our friends. Uh, my wife and I enjoy... Uh, wild birds, if you will, and I enjoy cooking. So I'll keep busy for a long time to come. Complete efficiency in the model. I like that. You bake that in. <laughs> Lastly, what I like to ask is, not sure how you consume music, whether it's, you know, you listen to Pandora stations or you have a playlist. What are you jamming out to right now? What's some of your favorite music? Uh, I'm a jazz guy. So Marion Meadows, Huge Groove, um, David Benoit, you, you, you pick the jazz person, I mean, the one that Sandy and I both love is uh, Chris Bodie, who's a trumpet player. Uh, we were just at a Chris Bodie concert up at uh, SF Jazz not too long yeah. ago. Um, Brian Culbertson, who is just a hot, hot dude. I mean, while he's a jazz musician, he's a funky jazz musician. <laughs> and we went to see him at Yoshi's just a few weeks ago. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, love Yoshi's. So I'm an avid, avid jazz fan. And then do you watch any visual media? TV? Very little, quite okay. frankly. Because I was going to ask, what, what is your favorite show? Uh, I, I, uh, Nat Geo. Nat Geo. So if, if I'm going to turn the television on to calm me down, I watch uh, what's going on with animals around the world. Um, my wife and I have two passions that we share. One is about kids and education and the other is about conservation and the environment. And so we've been 
fortunate in our lives, and so a lot of the philanthropic work that we do is focused on those two areas. And so watching Nat Geo and seeing what's going on with animals around the world is just a wonderful thing for me. Finally, what's your book recommendation for the listeners? If you had to recommend one book, what would you select? I don't know. I've never been a big believer in learning simply by book, reading books. Um, uh, There are many, many leadership books that I've read over the years, but I'm one of person who believes in applied learning, where you read something and then you go try to practice what you've read to see whether or not you can make it work for yourself. And so I'm not one who believes that just reading for the sake of reading right. is going to make you a better leader. Interesting. Interesting, provocative, but also it resonates as well. John, thank you so much for your time. No, my I think pleasure. the listeners will really, really enjoy this podcast, and I would love to have you back at some later point in the future. Well, only if the people enjoy this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. All right, thank you. All right. And that concludes part three of the three-part series with John W. Thompson on the Series B Show. I'm your host, Brandon Jones. Hope you really enjoyed and learned a lot from John's journey. I know I did. Highly inspired. If you have any uh, questions or comments concerned, definitely check out the website, uh, seriesbshow.com. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, be true, be you.